Welcome, everybody, to Naturalist Nights. Thank you so much for coming tonight. As many of you know, ACES recently suffered the loss of our education director, Aaron Truk, just earlier this week. Um, so it's a very difficult time for us and for the whole community that he was involved in. And so it means so much to us that all of you uh, are here tonight. It feels like support for ACEs and support also for the work that Aaron cared so much about. Uh, if any of you have questions about that or would like to know more uh, about how to support the family, you can find me or Jim or Phoebe after the talk um, and, and we'll all be happy to answer questions and direct you to resources. So Naturalist Nights is a 10-week free speaker series in the Roaring Fork Valley, and it's hosted by a partnership between Wilderness Workshop, us, the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, and the Roaring Fork Audubon. Um, if you have questions about the work that any of those organizations do, there's plenty of literature out front. Um, please feel free to check that out. And we host these talks uh, from now through early March uh, in Carbondale on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. and here at Hallam Lake in Aspen on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Um, we're really grateful to, oh, my slides have advanced. <laughs> we're grateful to our sponsors, Woody Creek Distillery tonight, who is our featured sponsor. Uh, these businesses provide financial and in-kind donations which cover travel expenses for our speakers and the cost of having grassroots TV, thank you, Brad, in the back, um, video the presentations and making Naturalist Nights possible. Grassroots TV does air these presentations on channel 12, Up Valley, and channel 82, Down Valley, and the videos are also available on our organization's websites and social media feeds in the coming weeks. Uh, we live stream each of the Naturalist Night speakers on either Wednesday or Thursday evening uh, on both Wilderness Workshop and ACES Facebook pages. Um, thank you, everybody who has signed in already. If you haven't done that, um, please find a moment to do it on, on your way out, or we'll pass the clipboard around. Um, we're also very pleased to offer continuing education certificates. So if you're an educator, you can earn a free continuing education hour for tonight's presentation. Uh, you can get one hour per week and there's no minimum necessary and you can get up to 10, uh, 10 hours. So if you need to sign in for that, we also have a sign up sheet out there. Please be sure to sign in. Um, after the talk, all of you are invited to Aspen Tap for $15 pitchers. If you'd like to join us, please make sure just to get a stamp um, and you'll, you'll be able to get uh, discounted pitchers there. Um, just so you know, next week's presentation will be our own uh, Rebecca Weiss and Mark Fuller with a talk uh, about birding in the Roaring Fork Valley. Uh, they just finished a book, released it this summer, uh, which focuses on birds in the Roaring Fork. They're really, really wonderful, great members of the community, so please come out to that. Uh, and now I'm really pleased to introduce tonight's speaker, Van Graham. Where is, where is Van? Okay, so we might we might be waiting uh, for Van a little bit, but this way he won't know if I um, if I if I make any mistakes in his introduction. Um, Van is a retired wildlife biologist who worked for Colorado Parks and Wildlife for 32 years. 
His interest in sandhill cranes began when working in Steamboat Springs, where the core population of Colorado's nesting and staging cranes is located. Sandhill cranes were listed as a Colorado endangered species in 1973, and by the mid-1970s, research on cranes had intensified, primarily to gather baseline data and begin development of management plans and programs. Throughout his career, uh, Van has assisted with annual work plans, inventories, field studies, and the development of a greater Sandhill Crane recovery program. He worked with CPW wildlife managers based in Northwest Colorado and collaborated on plans with the US Forest Service. Van currently lives in Grand Junction where he works as a private environmental consultant, uh, mostly working in Western Colorado. He's a board member of the Colorado Crane Conservation Coalition, which sponsors the annual Yampa Valley Crane Festival in Steamboat Springs in late August through early September each year. He maintains a deep interest in sandhill cranes and enjoys traveling to various locations to observe, photograph, and enjoy them across North America. It is such an honor to welcome Ray to our 2019 Naturalist Night series. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Oh, you're I all mic'd up. Yeah, I think I've got a microphone here. Hello. I'm glad you could all turn out tonight to talk about sandhill cranes or learn about sandhill cranes. Let me find my changer here. Oh, yep, there it is. Um, I worked with Sandhill Crane since 1976 when I was a district wildlife manager up in Steamboat Springs. In 1973, the Sandhill Cranes were listed as a state endangered species. It was about the same time the Federal Endangered Species Act was put into effect. Uh, there were river otters and some prairie chickens and some other wildlife species that uh, were also added to the list at that time. But Sandhill Cranes, folks really didn't know too much about them. The populations were pretty low. There was a small population up around Hayden and Steamboat Springs, but they thought that was a species that needed some work. And for the next 25 years or so, I worked with the cranes, uh, developing recovery plans, doing annual inventory work and that sort of thing, working with the Forest Service and the BLM. And I've maintained uh, that relationship as far as cranes, I really love them. Uh, I count myself as a, as a card-carrying craniac, <laughs> which is sort of like a, a maniac, but it's just centered on cranes. <laughs> but tonight we're going to be talking about the cranes that occur in Colorado, our Rocky Mountain population. The largest numbers of them are up in the area around Hayden, Steamboat Springs, and Craig. That's where the main nesting population located. There are some in, in Mesa County around Colburn. I know there's some in the Spring Creek area, just up uh, by Glenwood Springs and Carbondale, a few very small nesting populations. There's some that nest around Nucla and Natarita, but by, by and large, the biggest population is up in the Steamboat, uh, Yampa River Valley, Elk River Valley, and that country up there. Uh, and we're gonna be talking about the Rocky Mountain population. It's approximately 20,000 birds. They're, uh, found in northern Colorado, of course, northeastern Utah, uh, western Wyoming, eastern Idaho, Montana, and a little bit up into southern Saskatchewan 
in Alberta. Uh, they're not near the numbers it is uh, in the mid-continent population. You, maybe some of you have been to Kearney, Nebraska and, and see the birds, the lessers that come through there, and that's almost 600,000 cranes. The, the R's are the graders, the lessers are a little bit smaller, maybe 25% uh, smaller than the graders, and uh, they have a much, much larger migration. A lot of the lessers winter down in, in Texas and, and Arizona, New Mexico, and, uh, but they end up, a lot of them end up going up to Upper Canada, Alaska, and also some even go into Siberia. So that's what we'll be talking about is the Rocky Mountain population. One thing I always like to get out of the way, and you probably, I think you're a lot of birders here, but I always get the question, well, I just saw down on the creek, I saw a sandhill crane feeding on some fish. And I said, well, no, that's a great blue heron. They kind of look alike, and they got long beaks, they're tall birds, big wings spread, long legs. But of course, they're a completely different species than sandhill cranes, and one of the big Big differences is they nest in trees, heronries, and uh, you know maybe 15, 25 nests, uh, and so they're a completely different species. Cranes, uh, of course, group up in big flocks during the migration, and and great blue herons are sort of, sort of uh, solitary species. Sandhill cranes, as a whole, are one of the oldest living bird species uh, in the world. Uh, fossils in Florida have uh, been found to be about 10 million years old. And then also in northeast Nebraska at Ashfall uh, State Park, they've, uh, they've found a, a sandhill crane that, I mean, uh, excuse me, a crowned crane looks similar to a, a sandhill crane, but it's actually the species that occurs in Africa right now. And that's about 10 mi million years also. There was a big volcano with a lot of ash and it, it uh, buried a lot of wildlife species in a, and the crane did occur. I'm going to talk a little bit uh, in the beginning about uh, the Snowmastodon project at uh, Snowmass. It's real close to home here for you folks. Uh, in, in 2010, a bulldozer operator, Ziegler Reservoir, uh, while he was digging the reservoir out to make it a little deeper to hold more water, he found a bone. He got out this bulldozer and, and it was either a mastodon or a mammoth bone. And the Denver Museum of Nature and Science started a big paleontological uh, dig there and, uh, and found, uh, of course, a huge number of, of bones. Here's kind of, these are uh, courtesy of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Jan Verizon did some paintings, uh, speculation of what, about what Ziegler Reservoir looked like uh, 130,000 years ago. Uh, it was a glacier uh, pond that was glaciated out by a, a glacier and that went down Snowmass Creek. Later on, about 120,000 years ago, this is a, uh, what it potentially might have look, looked like with mastodons, giant sloths, and the longhorned bison, which is kind of an ancient relative of our current bison. Then about uh, 45,000 years or so ago, there were uh, camels, uh, mammoths and a deer in the area, and uh, I, I think a lot of people. It was a it was a pretty big project and got a lot of news. And I was always curious of whether maybe there were some crane bones. And so I did call one of the 
the researchers and talked with him. And uh, um, he kind of laughed at me and he said, I'm not going to tell you. Because he, he hadn't finished his paper yet and he hadn't gotten it published, so he wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> Later on, I did contact him and that's what he found. Uh, it's a cervical vertebrae from a crane. Um, small, it's sm uh, uh, bigger than a sandhill crane, but similar in size to a hooping crane. So, and that was estimated between 80,000 and 120,000 years ago. So it was pretty cool to find a, a crane in our country here that long ago. I'm going to talk a little bit about the, about the biology of cranes, uh, a little bit of their, their background information. Of course, they're a, a large bird. Uh, one of the main characteristics is the, the uh, unfeathered forehead that's red in color. Uh, they've got a white cheek patch, uh, a black bill, about 48 inches tall. They have a really brightly orange eye about a greater than a six foot wingspan and they average 10 to 12 pounds. Uh, of course, they nest on the ground. The big difference between them and great blue herons, they fly with an outstretched neck, whereas a great blue heron, we all know, flies with a neck that's curled back. And they have the distinctive bustle. A lot of people think that, well, maybe that's the tail. It kind of looks like a tail. It's pretty distinctive, it's, it's unique to cranes. But where is the bustle? <laughs> you can see there the yellow arrow points to the tail, which is on a crane is actually pretty small. But the tertial feathers, the innermost feathers on the wing are what makes up the bustle. When they fold their wings back, those inner tertials droop down and form the bustle. So it's a, it's a really interesting characteristic of sandhill cranes. Uh, sandhill cranes are long-lived. In the wild, 15 to 25 years is probably a pretty good average. Uh, one of the researchers a while back, and actually a long time ago, banded a crane, and there, I might still be alive, but it was, last I heard it was about 36 years old, and that's pretty unusual for a wild, wild crane. The males and the females are almost in, indistinguishable. There is a little bit of difference. Usually the males are a little bit bigger than the females. And a little later on, there's one other characteristic that we'll look at that uh, can you distinguish a male from a female. They're omnivores. They'll eat just about anything. Crickets, especially in the spring, there's a lot of crickets in the ste Steamboat Springs area that come out. But spiders, uh, grain crops that farmers grow, uh, small plants, tubers. One time I saw a crane down by Delta that picked up a, dug up a plant that had a tuber and it was about 10 feet away from the water. And so it walked all the way down into the water, washed off, the, looked at it several times, washed it off again, and then finally ate it. So it's kind of like people, they don't like to eat sand too much. Uh, so earthworms are real common in their diet. They'll eat mice, uh, I've seen them catch a vole and tear a vole apart to feed to the young, small snakes, salamanders, just about anything that uh, moves around they'll eat. In the center are pebbles that came from the gizzard. They're just like gallinaceous birds. They eat, they eat uh, small pebbles to help in the digestion in the gizzard. 
talk a little bit about the coloration of the birds. Uh, their natural color is an ashy, kind of a slate gray on the right, and that's the typical color of sandhill cranes. This is in the winter plumage after the nesting season has been completed. Uh, on the bird on the right, one characteristic of sandhill cranes is the feather staining. They'll take iron-laden mud and they'll work it through their feathers over a long period of time as the breeding season is approaching, they're preparing themselves um, with, the, with the coloration. Um, this next slide, I'll have, it's got some video and, and some audio. Uh, these birds were taken down, uh, video was taken down by Fruit Growers Reservoir down by Eckert, Colorado. And if you watch real close, watch the bird on the left, you'll notice it. I think the next time it goes to the ground, it'll pick up a little bit of grass. And you can kind of see the grass dangling there. Um, and the bird on the right, you can see the, the mud all over the beak. And I watched these birds for almost two hours, and that's what they did for two hours. All they're doing is painting their feathers, uh, staining their feathers. It's thought that it's used uh, most likely for camouflage for the birds during the nesting season. Some people say, well, maybe it's getting rid of mites and insects. I don't think that's true. I think it's more likely good, good for camouflage. This is probably a pair, male and female, and they worked on staining their feathers probably for two hours or so. That's all they did in the morning. They were waiting to, to migrate and, uh, and head north and uh, there was probably 30 or 40 birds in this group and that's all they did. Some of the local people that were around watching the birds thought they were just kind of, kind of preening or maybe feeding, but they were actually staining their feathers. Pretty interesting to watch. Uh, talk a little bit about chicks. Chicks, another name, they have call them colts. These birds are about 70 days old. We, uh, back in the, the 90s, we did capture some birds and put some radio transmitters on the young birds. We had uh, run them down before they could fly, uh, about a week or so before they could fly. But you can see the difference between that and adult. They've got a dark eye versus the orange eye on adult. They've got kind of the pinkish bill. Those birds are about 70 days old, almost as big as an adult, no red crown at all, down feathers. They've got kind of a, a brownish colored uh, uh, hood on top. Uh, and the coloration on them is natural, natural coloration of the feathers. Uh, that's not any feather staining on their part at this, this point. Now the colt here is about 160 days old. It, uh, you can kind of see that the, the down is kind of falling off from its forehead. It's kind of gray. The eyes aren't quite as yellow as the adult. The beak is starting, starting to turn dark, and it still has that, uh, that brownish feathered crown. But it, at this time, they're almost as big as the adults. One thing that's pretty interesting about sandhill cranes is they do a lot of dancing. Uh, they, it's thought to be mainly for pair bonding, but they'll do jumps and bows and twists and turns. They'll pick up sticks and throw them in the air. Uh, it gets to be pretty interesting to watch them and one will bow and the other will jump. And, and uh, sometimes they'll do it with the neighbors, even though a lot of times it's just pairs that are doing the dancing. The young birds, uh, 
after they're six or eight months old, they'll join in with the dancing, trying to learn how the birds are, how the dancing goes. And so it's, it's a pretty interesting thing to watch. And they'll dance almost year round, anytime. You, if you go down to Bosque de la Pecci to see cranes down there during the winter, you can see cranes dancing. But it's more common as the nesting season is progressing. Uh, this slide here um, shows what they call a unison call. It's one of the main uh, calls that the birds use. It, uh, it's also a pair bonding call. And, uh, but cranes actually have about 12 different calls. They call them bugles, trumpets, rattles, croaks, purrs. A lot of times they purr to get the chicks to come when they found a worm or something for them to eat. And the chicks have kind of a, I call it a referee's whistle call in this, when the, right after they've hatched. But one of the good characteristics is you'll notice the male's head in the middle is almost straight up. And the female's is cocked maybe to 70 degree angle or something like that. And when they're during the unison call, the female will usually call twice and the male will call once. But the unison call goes on and on and on maybe for 30 seconds. It's a, it's a long call. But that's one good way to distinguish the male from the female. And I've got a little bit of audio here. Listen for the trill. Pretty interesting to hear that hear those chicks, and they'll they'll have that call almo almost until spring. So they they have they don't get the deeper voice for almost a year. I'm going to talk a little bit about the annual life cycle of sandhill cranes um, during the migration, the nesting season, uh, migration farther south. And so we'll kind of kind of look at how their year progresses. I'm going to start off at Monta Vista. Uh, it won't be long until the cranes that are down in New Mexico to the wintering along the, the Rio Grande River, Bosque del Apache, and some of the other wildlife areas, um, the cranes will start moving north and they'll fly into Monta Vista National Wildlife Refuge. There's a huge number of cranes that uh, gather there. It's kind of a staging area for the migration farther to the north. And the cranes will start arriving there in February or so, and they'll stay there for a month. Uh, feeding on the grain that the refuge has planted. They plant barley that's donated by the Coors Company. Uh, a tremendous amount of grain is planted there. And Monte Vista hosts this uh, uh, annual Sandhill Crane Festival. I'm sure some of you have probably been down to that. It's really interesting, a good place to see cranes. You can get really close, get some good uh, photos and that sort of thing. This is a slide that uh, uh, I took last year down at Monta Vista. It has some audio to it. And the birds were out in the field and feeding until about 10 or 11 o'clock. Then they decided to go to water. It's composed of greater sandhill cranes, lesser sandhill cranes, and a lot of Canada geese, and probably some ducks in there too.
And they had been feeding in those barley fields for probably a couple hours, maybe three hours, and then they were heading over to an area where there was some water that was available. I'm not sure how many birds were there, probably maybe 10,000 at that time. And, it, and this wasn't all. There were birds in other areas, too. Some birds are going one way and some birds are, are coming back. Yeah, right. Well, Monta Vista, just south, about five miles south of Monta Vista. It's a really a great place to go and see a lot of cranes and a lot of other wildlife species there, too. And there's the barley fields that uh, Coors donated the grain, uh, grain for to plant. Uh, so they stay for about a month or so in Monta Vista. Here's a slide showing some cranes that were roosting on, on some ice there. Um, but the days are starting to get longer. Things are starting to warm up. People and birds all know that spring's on its way. The breeding season's starting to approach. And there may be up to 20,000 birds there. There's a mixture of mostly graders, our graders, but there are a few lesser sandhill cranes that are part of the mid-continent population. And those birds always separate out. I'm not sure exactly where they go. They probably go over the San Grade at Cristo Mountains and hit the front range and then follow the front range on up. Because I've, I've never seen a lesser sandhill crane with our Rocky Mountain cranes. It's amazing how they divide themselves out, but, but they do. So uh, migration, typically on the day when they select, they're going to migrate. Not everybody, not all the cranes migrate at one time. Uh, it's kind of a hopscotch, different groups of birds go at different dates. Um, usually starts in early March. They usually like to wait until 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, let things heat up a little bit so they can catch some thermals. They might travel 200 miles in a day, uh, depending on the wind weathered conditions, maybe 15 to 50 miles an hour. And they typically like to go in clear skies. They don't like to go when the weather's bad. Um, and uh, once they kind of ring up and get maybe a couple thousand feet, they'll, they'll line out. And typically they'll fly in a V formation. There's been quite a bit of research done and it's been shown that the, the uh, upwash from the lead, leading bird actually helps the trailing bird fly. So it conserves energy for the birds. A lot of times they'll fly up to 14,000 feet as they're going across our, our Rockies. Um, Quite a few years back in the 90s when we were really studying the cranes pretty intensively, I, uh, one of our uh, radio banded birds was in Hayden one day. We flew down the next day in the state plane and I found it. So in one day it had gone from Hayden down to uh, the San Luis Valley. And uh, I was talking to the pilot as we were flying over Gunnison. We were at about 13,000 feet in elevation. I told the pilot, I said, you know, we're kind of like right along the the flyway. A couple of minutes later, sure enough, about 10 cranes right out our window, really close. And so we started watching a little, a little more. Um, but go, flying high is no big deal for them. So the next place they, they stop after they've left Monta Vista is the town of Orchard City, Eckert. It's a little bit north of Delta. And there's a, there's a reservoir there. It's called Fruit Growers Reservoir. You can see somebody really likes Crane there. They named one of the lanes Crane Lane. Uh, there's a 
a slide showing uh, Fruit Growers Reservoir. They've got a kiosk out there that talks about the cranes. But usually it's a one-day trip from the San Luis Valley to Fruit Growers Reservoir where the birds will stop over, and it's usually a one-night stand there. They'll fly in. They might do a little bit of feeding, but they're all in pretty good body condition. They've had a lot of corn and grain down at Bosque del Apache and other places on the Rio Grande. They've had a lot of good food to San Luis Valley, so they don't really don't need a whole uh, a lot of food at this time. So they take a break. If it's a real stormy day, they might spend two days there. Uh, this slide shows uh, some cranes. They've got livestock in the area. It's mostly surrounded by private uh, land. Um, back in 2014, uh, Evie Horn, who's a craniac that lives in the area down there, uh, her and some other folks uh, totaled up about 50, over 15,000 cranes that came through. And it's a really good place to see cranes migrating in the spring. They come in and they're maybe 10, 11,000 feet and they start circling. And a lot of times you'll see them just fix their wings and they'll parachute down thousands of feet. And when just as they're reaching the ground, they'll flap a couple times. It's really interesting to watch. You often hear them long before you ever, ever see them. It's a really good place to see cranes. And that's where I saw the cranes that were painting their feathers. So as they, as they return to their, their nesting grounds or the areas where they are gonna nest, a lot of times this was taken up by Steamboat Springs, they'll encounter snow. And uh, the things are starting to break up, the temperatures are starting to get uh, warmer, the rivers are kind of opening up a little bit. Uh, there's patches of, of grass that are starting to show. The insects start coming out a lot sooner than you'd think. And the birds are in pretty good condition. And they'll, a lot of times they'll go to uh, another little staging areas around the Elk River and also around Hayden. They'll go to some of the old farmers' fields and pick through the grains and they kind of wait until the conditions are right for nesting. And uh, typically they'll stay in those areas until they start dispersing to the uh, nesting territories. Uh, Sandhill cranes don't become sexually mature until about uh, four or five years old. And so last year's birds, the bachelors and bachelorettes, it's both, both sexes in the group, kind of group up in small, maybe 20, 25, 30 birds, and they just kind of hang around. They're kind of like teenagers. They have no responsibility, you know. <laughs> no, no, nothing to take care of, no nesting, and so they just kind of <coughs> cruise around. They learn the countryside. A lot of times the chicks that were hatched say at Steamboat Springs, they'll come back to the same area. And uh, so they just kind of hang out and uh, um, in, enjoy the summer, spring and the summer. Uh, the nesting activity in the lower areas along the Yampa River and the Elk River usually starts in April. In the higher country, it starts about a month later. Elevations here are probably 6,200 feet, something like that. The higher elevations, they'll nest all the way up to 9,000 feet in some of the high parks. And so birds will nest in this lower country and uh, then later on in the higher country. California Park was probably one of the areas where uh, was the last bastion of sandhill cranes when populations were slow, so low. It's kind of a uh, isolated, very, very beautiful high mountain park about 25 miles north of Hayden. It's about three miles long and maybe a mile or so wide. It's a rolling sagebrush with a lot of uh, streams, willow line streams, great nesting habitat for sandhill cranes. It's, it's part of the national forest system. 
So adults pair for life. Uh, they part, first start uh, nesting at about four years of age. In the high country up there, they're, they're very territorial and uh, also secretive. Uh, usually maybe 160 acres would be a territory for a sandhill crane pair. And uh, although in some places in the lower country, we do have some larger reservoirs where it seems like maybe three or four pair might nest. But in the higher country, they're usually pretty secretive and, and the nests are really difficult to find. This is really good crane nesting habitat. You can see a beaver, beaver dam there. They like to nest in oxbows. And I'll talk just in a few minutes about uh, beaver. But uh, willow and sagebrush, every once in a while they'll nest in the sagebrush maybe a, oh, 10 meters or so away from the, from the water. But usually they're within a very short distance of water as they're nesting. This is in California Park also. This is a, a nest that was constructed in kind of a boggy area. They dug out the sedges and piled them up and made the nest. And so they kind of created a moat for themselves to protect from predation, coyotes and foxes and, and that sort of thing. This is the same nest in that bog. You can see the, there's an eggshell that has a little bit of shell membrane on it, which uh, indicates a successfully hatched egg. Typically, if a predator eats an egg, they, they kind of eat the, the membrane too. Uh, this nest, I think, produced a couple of chicks. This is a different, little different style. It's made of willow twigs. It was kind of in an oxbow of one of the streams going into California Park. I took the photo when it was a little bit older, but it did have some grasses. Usually they'll have a little bit of a lining on a stick nest like this. So this is a evidence of a beaver around. And beaver are really important in Colorado for nesting, especially in the high country. Uh, they like to... Uh, they like to build a nest on a beaver lodge, uh, beaver dam. A lot of the, the bigger ponds will have hummocks of grass that grow up. And uh, some nests that we've found that they use the same site 20 years or more. So if they're successful and they, they want to, uh, they know the area, they know where the food's at, and, and they'll come back to the same nest site. Here's a beaver pond. It's got one of those hummocks of grass, one of our researchers found the nest was on that, uh, uh, that beaver pond. And that's California Park also. So both adults uh, will incubate the eggs, usually the female at night. Uh, the male, once daylight hits, the male will trade off and they usually feed for two hours and then they'll trade off on the incubation. It usually takes about 32 egg days for the eggs to hatch. They usually start incubating after the first egg is laid, so there might be a, a delay of a day or so between when one is, chick is hatched and the other. Here's a comparison, two sandhill crane eggs on the left and chicken egg on the right. Uh, they're uh, kind of that light brown with the darker brown spots on them. Usually, one, uh, usually two eggs, sometimes one, but I have seen four, That's, which is really unusual to see that many eggs in a nest. Here's a, another type of nest. It's built with cattails. You can notice the, they trimmed off all the cattails in the background to, to make the nest. Two eggs. You can see how colored up that bird is. She really did, or he, I'm not sure which, really did a good job of sustaining the feathers. This is the same nest. Um, 
If you look carefully, back at the wing there, there's a chick. Everybody see that? Yeah. So I suspect uh, there may be an egg that she's still sitting on. That looks like a really freshly hatched chick. Uh, and that's actually the same, same uh, nest site that we saw on the previous slide. A lot of times they'll, uh, the chicks can swim from the nest sites. That's, that's no big deal. As soon as they're, they're dried off, they can fly away. Uh, I mean, swim away. Uh, here's a chick that's uh, not very old, maybe a day or two old. Of course, they're precocial. They're just like a chicken or a duck or a goose. As soon as the down, down dries out, they're up and, up and going, as opposed to great blue herons where they've got to stay, the chicks have to stay in the nest a long time until they're feathered out and can leave the nest. A lot of times, if it's uh, in an area where there's not a lot of cover, they'll go back and forth from the nest for a couple of weeks, and they'll use the nest as a, as a roosting site. Here's a, an adult with two chicks. They're probably maybe, maybe 10 days old there. Uh, they grow really fast. It's amazing. Uh, better than a half an inch a day. In 70 or 75 days, they're almost as large as the adults. So just an amazing growth rate. Here's a couple of sandhill cranes, each with a chick. A lot of times they'll do that. Uh, there is a little sibling rivalry uh, between the chicks sometimes. And so the adults separate them, and uh, the chicks will eat on their own. Also, the, the adults will pick up an earthworm and feed them and that sort of stuff. It doesn't take the chicks too long to, before they can start figuring out what insects are and that sort of thing and what's good to eat. You can see a sandhill crane court sort of in the center right there. In um, the right-hand side, that's the rearview mirror of my pickup truck. <laughs> Uh, so I was pretty close. I didn't want to get out. I'm sure there was a chick right around there somewhere. I, I never did see it. I didn't spend a lot of time there. But a lot of times Aspen is a is good rearing habitat. The, the stream here was located about 100 yards away from this Aspen patch. But there's really good forage, a lot of insects, a lot of grasses and tubers and that sort of stuff. Really good feed in the Aspen. It's also pretty good cover if a coyote comes loping along or something. It's good cover for the chicks to hide in. So what happens in, in August in Colorado? The temperatures start getting cooler, the aspen starts to change, um, winter's on its way. Colder temperatures, all the bugs are starting to die, earthworms are going deeper in the ground, it's harder to find food. So the birds all know, like the people know, it's about time to, to migrate. And they start migrating in the Steamboat Springs, Hayden area, also around Meeker, there's quite a few cranes. They'll move down to the same staging areas they used in the spring. Uh, and it's not all one, one big group. It usually depends on when the chicks were hatched. Uh, uh, the chicks in the female and the male adults um, were in areas where uh, they weren't seeing any other. They might hear other cranes, but uh, they come down, the four of them or three of them, depending on how many chicks there were, and they come down to the staging areas and there might be 500 cranes. So it's probably a really big surprise for the, for the young chicks to see all these cranes. And actually, a lot of times as they do come down, the ones that first come down kind of stay on the periphery. The adults kind of let them integrate into the, the larger flocks. And that usually begins uh, mid-August, early September is when the migration to the lower country starts. 
There's an adult on the top, an adult on the bottom, and a, and a chick in the middle. So you can see they're almost, almost the same size. So they fly down to the staging areas here at, at Hayden in the Elk River. Most of the staging areas are within a mile or two of the, the river. And they feed in uh, grain fields, usually wheat fields, in the Steamboat Springs and the Hayden area. Um, one thing that's occurring up there, there's not nearly as much agriculture as it used to be. It used to be about 8,500 uh, 8, acres, excuse me, 85,000 acres of wheat up in that country, and now it's down to about 10. And uh, the bird habits are changing a little bit because landowners change what they're growing, but uh, they still gather up in flocks and for feeding. The cranes all roost in water. That's pretty typical. Every night after, in the evening as they fly in from the feeding, they'll fly into the river. They like to roost in maybe 12 to 16 inches of water. It's very good protection from predators. They nest, they, they group up in a large group. Uh, it's not a bird here and a bird there and, a, and spread out. They're all, they're all kind of in a large group. It's a really good way to protect themselves from, from predators. If coyote tries to, or a bobcat tries to get them in the water, they, they can fly away. Uh, in a good year, about 8% of the population is composed of, of chicks. If it's down to about 4%, you'd know that the population didn't have a very good nesting season. And also cranes from other states, Wyoming, Montana, also come down, hopscotch down, and use our staging areas. You can see an adult on the left there and a and a chick on the right. Oh, let me go back a second. You can see that the, uh, the adult is already starting to molt its feathers, starting to lose those, those stained feathers, and it's starting to be replaced by the natural gray, gray feathers. So the migration uh, from the, the Yampa River Valley down to the San Luis Valley use, usually occurs in the latter part of September. Um, and that's kind of a hopscotch too. It's not one big migration. Different bird, different groups of birds will go on different days, and I'm not sure exactly what keys that, but they'll migrate down uh, to the San Luis Valley. Then the, the uh, sandhill cranes will arrive in the in the San Luis Valley in September, October, and November, and they'll stay down there and feed in the grain fields. Uh, that's Mount Blanca in the background, and this is down at. Uh, um, the Monte Vista National Wildlife Refuge. There's, they've just grown all the barley and the wheat down there, mostly barley, and they'll stay there for uh, quite some time before they migrate on down to the mid and lower Rio Grande River. Uh, Bosque del Apache is one of the main areas. They plant a lot of grain in that area. This is a, a slide of Bosque del Apache, one of the ponds they have there. They plant a lot of corn, um, other other uh, grain crops that uh, they utilize. A lot of times they'll go through and knock down the corn uh, so the, the cranes have easy access to it. There's a couple of sand hills that are kind of parachuting. They've got their heads up and the legs down. They're getting ready to, to land in the water. So they spend December, January, and February down at Bosque del Apache feeding then. I'm not sure exactly what kind of grain crop that is there but uh, it's, it's a flooded area. And they move back and forth, and at times there could be up to 15,000 cranes down there. A lot of times there's up to 60,000 snow, snow geese at Bosque del Apache. 
If you ever get a chance to go down, it's really a great place. They have a lot of road systems and uh, it's a good place to uh, photograph Sandhill Crane. So then after that, a week or not too much longer from now, they're going to go back to, to uh, the San Luis Valley. Uh, it's kind of where we started on this annual cycle of the crane. Uh, one thing I do want to talk about is uh, this is kind of a change in the habits of sandhill cranes. We now have wintering sandhill cranes down by uh, Delta. There's the Escalante State Wildlife Area. These cranes used to always go down to the San Luis Valley and then on farther down into New Mexico, but their habits have changed. Uh, the uh, Escalante State Wildlife Area is a good place for roost sites. It's got a lot of meanders and uh, oxbows and places where there's good roosting habitat. The farmers surrounding that area grow a lot of corn, so it's perfect habitat for the cranes. And this has kind of been occurring over maybe a 20-year period. There were really small numbers, but in the last five or uh, six, seven, eight years, the numbers have really climbed, and it's up to almost 3,000, 3,500 cranes that are. So it's getting to be a pretty large chunk of the 20,000 cranes that used to migrate farther south that stay here and feed in the cornfields. I talked to uh, one of the biologists up at uh, Uray National Wildlife Refuge up south of Vernal. In the last two years, they've had almost 2,000 sandhills wintering there, and, and the lady said that was the first time ever that they've had wintering sandhill cranes up there. So that's almost 5,000 cranes out of the 20,000 that aren't going farther south. Um, I guess anybody could have a conjecture, but I kind of think it's maybe the winters are getting milder and the, the corn's available and they're probably like people are a little bit lazy if you don't have to, if you don't have to fly that far south and you can get your belly full every evening with corn or whatever, then, then why do it? Um, but that area around Escalante is a really good place now to go down and, and watch for cranes. I went down a couple of days ago and saw a lot of cranes. It's a good place to, to go, go down in the evening and watch them as they go into the, some of the roost sites. I'm going to talk just real quick about what happened to the cranes. Why did they become endangered in Colorado? Um, we had to put them on the state endangered species list. Well, probably three different aspects. One was market hunting. Um, it's kind of like the bison. You've probably seen photos of the big stacks of bison skulls and they were shooting all the bison on the plains, a lot of times just for the hides. Everybody wanted a bison hide. And uh, did the same thing with birds. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, birds' populations were really reduced. Um, and, and a lot of it was for, for sale in markets. Uh, in 1895, about 385 uh, sandhills were sold in uh, San Francisco for about 57, uh, 50 cents each. Also in California, uh, a lot of the, uh, before they started raising turkeys, the hunters would go out and shoot sandhill cranes and for Christmas dinner they were eating sandhill cranes rather than turkeys. So that, that was probably a, a big reason for the loss of sandhill cranes. Here's just another slide showing a whooping crane and several sandhill cranes that were shot. So that was probably one impact on the cranes. Another was the unregulated grazing. At the turn of the century and, and before, people brought livestock out and it was open range. You could 
wherever you could graze your cattle, it was fine. Um, and, and they did, large numbers. Uh, an old Forest Service guy up in Steamboat Springs told me that his granddad was riding from Steamboat up to California Park. And as he rode over the top of the hill and was uh, just about be able to, to view uh, California Park, he saw this smoke and he thought California Park was on fire. As it turned out, once he got a little better view, there was about 20,000 head of livestock in California Park. And I was just dust. All the vegetation was gone. The ranchers were gathering all the, all the livestock up to ship them down to Steamboat to the, the railroad. And so that had a huge impact on beaver dams, all the willows and all the vegetation. So that was a, that really impacted the habitat. And then beaver were another issue. Um, back in the 17, 1800s, uh, beaver were trapped almost to extinction. Uh, I've read some reports about the Hudson Bay Company in one year, 200,000 beaver skins were shipped to Europe. And uh, so that was, and that occurred in the continental uh, United States also. Um, and that was the one reason. It really made good uh, beaver felt hats. And that was the big rage up until about eight, uh, 1850 when it changed and, and that kind of went out of style. But uh, so the combination of, of hunting, over hunting, uh, beaver trapping is a, I think I indicated earlier, uh, maybe I forgot, but uh, in Colorado, approximately 60% of the, the beaver nests are associated with beaver ponds, lodges, and that sort of thing. So a huge number of beaver were lost. And, uh, and of course, the overgrazing was really a big impact too. Um, I'm on the board of the Yampa Valley Crane Festival, which uh, takes place in Steamboat Spring. Uh, this coming year, it'll be August 29th to September 1st. They have a lot of uh, opportunities for some viewing of cranes in some of the, the uh, staging areas. And they have a lot of good speakers. Last year, they had Jennifer Ackerman there. She's a genius of birds. She wrote a book. And they have good speakers. Several years ago, they had a speaker from Mongolia. So it's a really, uh, really interesting couple of days watching cranes and learning about cranes. They have Hawk Watch comes and and brings some uh, raptors down for viewing and that sort of thing. Kind of like to conclude, this is a, a quote from Aldo Leopold uh, in the, the Marshland Elegy. He, that's really a good, I'm sure a lot of you probably read that, Sand County Almanac. It just talks about how he feels about cranes and that, that's, uh, that's the way I feel about it and I'm sure a lot of you feel about cranes that way also. Well, that pretty much concludes my presentation. Uh, if anybody has any questions, I'd be glad to answer them. I've actually researched and I haven't found the answer yet. <laughs> uh, some, some people say it's uh, from the Sand Hills of Nebraska. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's true. Um, 
oh, this is a naturalist, I forget his first name, I think William Bartram, I think, down in Florida. Uh, they called them Savannah Cranes. And there's places down in Florida, I was actually born in Florida, and uh, there's some sand hills, turkey oak, sand, sand hill, uh, sand, sand pine, and, uh, and that actually stretches up into Georgia. Um, I kind of researched it to the point where um, just before, well actually when uh, Lewis and Clark, 1804, 1805, started heading west, I read through their notes and initially called, they call it a brown crane, then all of a sudden at some point in time they start calling it the sandhill crane. And it seems a little odd that Lewis and Clark all would name the crane a sandhill crane. Um, but that's a really good answer. And so far I've talked to people at the International Crane Foundation and they haven't figured it out either. But uh, it'd be nice to know exactly where that came from. That's a good question. Didn't mean to stump the band. <laughs> Vista, are they deliberately um, growing grain? Humans uh, are growing grain. Yes. And down in Bosque on the border, they're deliberately growing grain. Right. And yeah. then up in the Yampa Valley, are they deliberately growing grain, or is the farmers are inadvertently feeding the cranes? And how do they feel about it? It it at one time, well, and it still is. They are they're kind of the cranes are taking advantage, and a long time ago. When I worked up in the Steamboat Springs area, there were some concerns. Some of the farmers thought they didn't, uh, didn't worry so much about the grain they were actually eating, but they thought that as they landed and took off from the fields that they were knocking a lot of grain down. And uh, in some places there might have been uh, up to a thousand cranes in the fields. Uh, the way the farming practices have changed is uh, you don't hear too many issues about that anymore. The, the amount of grain is a lot less. And, uh, and actually some of the good things from the, uh, the advent of the Yampa Valley Crane Festival, um, we're actually got a project going, it's called Crops for Cranes. So we're actually paying some of the farmers to leave a little bit of the grain for the cranes. And uh, uh, the festival actually around town has generated a lot of positive things about the cranes and some of the ranchers that at one time um, might not have liked the crane so much they've kind of changed their tune because all their neighbors are, are got to the point where they kind of like to see the cranes around. So it's not as much of an issue as it has been and, and some of the farmers are actually benefiting from, from the planting of the cranes and, and the, the festival actually paying for that. So why has the uh, acreage of grain being grown for human consumption dropped so dramatically, you said from 80 to 10,000 acres? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, just economics. There's so much grain being produced that uh, in the conservation reserve program where the government actually pays the farmers not to, not to grow grain they plant it into grasses, nat native grasses, hopefully in most cases, and it's just a market issue. Is the high elevation migration strictly a virtue of having to clear the high, the 14,000 foot mountains, or is there yeah. other? Yeah, 
any other reason for that that height that altitude? No. Well, I, I you know I think they normally do, but usually it seems like they're about a thousand or two thousand, maybe three thousand feet. You know, a lot of times you'll hear them before you ever see them, but most of it. Uh, I think I failed to mention a lot of the, the cranes that are cranes that are nesting in our country uh, fly straight from the, the San Luis Valley just right in an, almost a straight line up to Steamboat Springs in Hayden where a lot of those birds that I was talking about down at Eckert Reservoir, they actually fly to the northwest. They fly right over the edge of Grand Mesa. They fly right over Grand Junction and their next stop is, is usually along the Green River at Vernal. That's another resting place. And then they disperse from there up into Northeast Utah, um, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. And, uh, but yeah, our birds that come up into our country, you know, they're going over 13,000 foot peaks. So they, it's just a matter of clearing the, clearing the elevations at that point. I'll hear them going by, have to find a pair of binoculars to <laughs> chase them down in the sky overhead in the fall as they're coming down. And I think they're actually catching good winds, um, tailwinds, um, but they're at least 10,000 feet. It's like two miles um, above my cabin at 10,000 feet. So, I mean, they're, they're I, my question is like, what's the maximum height we've ever seen them at? I know we've seen uh, I think it's the, the Nene goose over the Himalayas at 30,000 feet type of a thing. So uh, Yes. Well, some of the cranes over there, I can't remember what species, do fly over the Himalayas too. So they're 29. So, so you're saying that they're, you're at 10,000 feet and they're 10,000 feet above that? At least. Yeah. Well, that's, I've, yeah, that's possible. I've never, I've never seen them that high. I've been up on Grand Mesa and, and seen them at, at places that are almost 12,000 and they're probably a couple thousand feet above that and like the time at the airplane we were flying at probably I can't remember exactly 12 13 or 14,000 feet so I'm sure they can fly a lot higher if they if they have to and maybe you're right they've caught a good thermal and and they like to glide and and use as little as energy as possible so that's a good point well they look like they were on a straight beeline for the uh uh, going into um, the San Luis there, into the Monte Vista. Yeah. And usually October when they come overhead, and it's like this quote says, when you hear his call, I mean, I, I find myself, like I'll drop everything I'm doing and look, <laughs> and look for him. That's good. That's interesting information. Thanks. Yeah. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about mortality and what some of the common threats are in predators? Um, yeah, it's like most species, the chicks probably have the greatest mortality. Uh, the ravens, coyotes, foxes, uh, eagles will, will take birds, uh, uh, weasels will take, the, especially when the chicks are really small, uh, just about any kind of uh, raccoons, uh, prob maybe badgers or something like that. Um, Colorado doesn't hunt sandhill cranes. In, in 2012, they tried to get a season going on up around Steamboat Springs, and a bunch of the people that actually organized the Yampa Valley Crane Festival got a petition going, and there was a lot of testimony, and, and uh, there might have been enough local cranes for a hunting season, but the, 
Uh, I used to work for Division of Wildlife, and I actually wrote a letter and said I, I didn't think it was a good idea. There might be good, a population might be good enough for a limited harvest, but they hadn't done a very good job with uh, public relations. And, uh, uh, but all the surrounding states do. Uh, Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, down in New Mexico, they all hunt. So that's, but they're, it's real limited. It's probably not a huge amount. Uh, uh, wire strikes, especially down at uh, San Luis Valley, they've got a lot of the power lines have markers on them, little different things to try to make them more visible. Uh, and also down at Bosque del Apache, they've kind of tried to do that too. Um, I was down at Monta Vista one time and saw a bald eagle fly in and, and kill a um, sandhill crane. And we were, when they were doing the cross uh, hooping crane program up in Idaho, and that was back in the 80s, where they were putting hooping crane eggs in sandhill nests, they had one over by Price, Utah. Uh, a golden eagle knocked one of the hoopers out of the air one of the chicks, mm -hmm. they used a, a ultralight to, to guide the, the hooping cranes down. And that one, the, the hooper actually uh, didn't die. They picked it up and they rehabilitated it. So there's a lot of predators out there that will take sand. But once they reach the adult age, wire strikes, and uh, every once in a while they've had a few problems with, uh, I think, avian cholera down at uh, um, Bosque del Apache because they get so many cranes, 60 or 70,000 snow geese, and I don't know how many ducks and other waterfowl down there that, that they maybe have lost a few that way. But once they get to be adults, they're pretty indestructible. Can you tell us how long do you think the colts stay with their parents? They'll stay with them all the way. They'll probably follow them back after winter, so they're almost a year old, maybe not quite a year old. But once the adults start to, to um, build nests and that sort of stuff, they'll, they'll run them off. And so once the, they're incubating, the chicks are off on their own in those bachelor groups and that sort of thing. Um, they, but they'll, they'll stay with them all. And it's amazing sometimes to see them in those huge flocks like the video I showed yeah. you, how, how a chick stays with the, it's amazing, I don't know how they do it. One, one guy was telling me that he was, I think he was down at, uh, um, at uh, Bosque and a huge number, and there was one chick that was whistling like a referee's whistle, and another bird called somewhere, but it went right down and flew right down, and, and he assumed it was the adults, so they could tell. So it's amazing what wildlife does. Any other questions? All right, thank you very much.